Hello, sword people. Welcome to the Sword Guy podcast. This is your host, Dr. Guy Windsor, consulting swordsman, teacher, and writer. Join me for interviews with historical martial arts instructors and experts from a wide range of related disciplines as we discuss swords, history, training, and bringing the joy of historical martial arts into our modern lives. The episode show notes are at swordschool.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find transcriptions, photos, videos, and links for this and all the other episodes. While you are there, you can sign up for my mailing list, and I'll send you a free copy of my Sword Persons Care Package. This includes four ebooks and access to several of my online courses. My newsletter goes out every week with updates about the podcast, my works in progress, and all sorts of cool sword stuff. You can unsubscribe at any time and there's never any spam. Before we get on with the show, I'd like to thank the people who make it possible, my patrons on Patreon. It takes time and money to run a podcast and without them, I'd have quit long ago. Join us at patreon.com forward slash the sword guy for behind the scenes content to suggest future guests and priority access to my inbox. That's patreon.com forward slash the sword guy. I'd also like to thank Andrew Lawrence King for the Baroque harp accents that adorn the show, originally recorded for my Paradoxes of Defence audiobook project. Today's episode is a little bit different because rather than me interviewing somebody, I am actually being interviewed by Alexander Fergert and Michael Sprenger of the German-language German Schwertgeflüster Historical Martial Arts Podcast. Don't worry, we do the whole thing in English because, as usual, those non-English speakers speak English almost as well as most of us English speakers, which is rather embarrassing, but there we go. Unfortunately, I still can't speak more than a word or two of German. So, without further ado, on with the show. So, first up, uh, nice to meet you, Guy. I've Likewise. read a lot about you, <laughs> mostly from you. Okay. So, uh, like, I've read a couple of your books. I've read uh, your blog for, I think, a couple of years, actually. Okay. So, it feels like I know you a little bit, but actually I'm meeting you, even if it's virtually for the first time. Yeah, it's a problem you have with anyone who, who writes stuff. Is I have, I have the same experience when I meet you know, an author whose novels I've written, uh, novels I've read, where you think you know them, and actually it turns out you're just really familiar with their work. Yeah. And I think it gets uh, worse if you have a podcast, which we both do. Absolutely. Uh, yes. But it's, it's, it's nice, actually, because it creates a... Because, like, like, for example, when I go to a sword event, people who've listened to the podcast but haven't actually met me feel more comfortable coming up and saying, well, Guy, actually, you know, um, this Fiori thing and how does Posta de Donna work and blah, blah, blah. Right, which is exactly what I'm there for. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm there for the students. But them having listened to my voice many times makes them just more comfortable in coming up and actually asking me the question. You think so? Don't you think they get a little bit, I don't know, starstruck or something? Um, honestly, that's worse with books. Really? Because, yeah, because there's this natural misunderstanding um, that pretty much everyone who reads books has, including myself, that author equals authority. Yeah. So when somebody has written a book and you have bought that book and you read it, You interact with the author through that sort of separation of the book. And, you know, they're, they're the sort of person who can actually, like, produce a book and have it published and whatnot. And so that makes them, like, sort of up here. And it's like <laughs> they're, they're some kind of separate being. Like, um, there's a story of when uh, Roald Dahl met the 
Captain Hornblower author, whose name I'm suddenly blanking on for no good reason. And he describes the experience of meeting him as, you know, he expected him to be wearing like kind of some sort of robe and have sparks flying out of his head. <laughs> but it was just this perfectly ordinary bloke who showed up and asked him about his war experiences. Yeah. <laughs> like, C.S. Forrester, that's, that's the author. Um, but with a podcast, I mean, if you come across on the show as this distant authority figure telling people how it is, then maybe. But most of the time I'm interacting with peers and, you know, they'll, they'll correct me live and they will, um, you know, interact with me in a kind of natural way if it's a, if it's a good interview. And that kind of, I think it, it softens the whole, you know, it grants this well-known sword person and, oh, actually, he sounds like an ordinary person. Yeah, it kind of grants the people a bit. Right. If you hear them talk in a casual way. Yeah, voice is different. Yeah. So uh, I wrote you because we both do sword podcasts. Uh, mm -hmm. Our podcast, Schwertgeflüster, is in German. Yours, uh, the sword guy, in English. So I'd like to start at the beginning. What made you start a podcast? Why did you do it? And why do you ah, keep okay. doing it? Ah, okay, those are two separate questions. Yeah, in right. detail. Um, and I'll, I'll reflect the questions back at you when I'm done answering it, <laughs> okay? Uh, because, you know, turnabout is fair play. Okay, in November 2019, I read a book called Invisible Women by Caroline Criado Perez. Oh, yeah, very interesting book. It's a fascinating book. She's a data scientist. And in the book, she describes all sorts of ways in which uh, because the default... Um, assumption is that person equals male person. Women are discriminated against in all sorts of appalling ways. One obvious one being how cars are tested for safety using a default male crash test dummy. And when you test those same cars, they get a five-star rating with the default male crash test dummy. You test them again with a female-shaped dummy, they might only get a three-star rating. So women are driving around in cars that they've been sold as safe for them when actually they're not because they haven't been tested on women or women-shaped dummies. So it's, it, it was horrifying, right? And it sort of opened my eyes to aspects of sort of historical, uh, historical martial arts community that are default male, like gloves, right? My female students have always had a hell of a time getting gauntlets that fit them. Yeah. Um, And all sorts of other things, right? So that was sort of tinkering away in the back of my head. And then in during lockdown, in sort of, I guess, March, April, May, there was um, the whole Black Lives Matter thing erupted. And that was like, fuck. I mean, this is, there's, in all sorts of ways, this is related to the Invisible Women book. It's the same, fundamentally, it's the same phenomenon, right? I thought, well, what can I do about it? Right? And... Honestly, nothing, right? I'm not a politician. I'm not immensely wealthy. I'm not, I'm not wealthy at all. <laughs> um, and so I was like, and, and just one day I was just doing woodwork in my shed and I thought, well, why don't I start a podcast? And this was unrelated to all this, all this social justice stuff. And I thought, well, why would I start a podcast? I mean, Jesus, it's a lot of work. Um, and I don't make any money, right? I'm, I'm guessing you're not. You're not driving around in Ferraris, thanks no. to your <laughs> Not <podcast>. yet. <laughs> no, no. I mean, it's kind. Um, it's kind of like getting a dog, right? Yeah. You, it's just not a not just a one-time thing. You have to keep <laughs> doing it, doing it, doing it on a regular basis. Right. So I thought. So I thought. Then I thought. Hang on. Because of 
the work I've done in historical martial arts, I have a certain visibility, right? Yeah. And if I start a podcast, I can invite people onto the show and thus share my platform with them, share my visibility with them, right? So actually, there's, there's something within my own little community of historical martial arts people. There is something I can do to improve the way that women and minorities of various kinds are at least get heard from. Right. Okay, the so issue, basically, the issue with go ahead. Yeah. So, so you actually the point is to amplify the voices of those that are not as likely to be heard, right? If I get you correctly. Ex exactly. Yeah. So, like again, another story from um, Perez's book. There was this disaster. There's this horrible um, tsunami that destroyed a whole bunch of housing and killed thousands of people in India um, some many years ago. And when they rebuilt, they rebuilt all of this housing and there were no women involved in the planning process. And they built thousands of apartments that had no kitchens, right? Yeah. Just because <laughs> nobody asked the women, right? And in that culture, you know, kitchens were very much the female domain. So the men didn't even think about them. And literally, they physically built these apartments with no kitchens in them, right? That's the, it's just insane. So, so I thought, well, okay. But then I, I don't want my podcast to be just, you know, women and minorities and everything else. Because if I do that, it becomes a very niche thing. And it's not likely to get people who are not from those, those demographics listening to it. So I'll also invite people like Roland Varchika, Christian Tobler, and so on. Basically, middle-aged, straight white dudes <laughs> who are well-known in the community right? Because then middle-aged straight white dudes might listen to the show and they go, oh, that was quite interesting. And listen to the next one, which happens to be a woman, for instance, right? And so I'm, I'm running the show effectively as a social justice project. <laughs> that's, okay. that's what it's for. It's interesting um, that this was the original thought behind it or the, the impulse to create it. Because when you scroll through the episodes, you get that vibe. Like if someone asked me, then I would have said, yeah, that's seems to be important for a guy when he's selecting the guests right. but uh, the way you explain it it's one step further it's not just this is a happy coincidence yeah you can do it but no this is the reason that you started it this is yeah like like the single probably most difficult thing about running the show is finding enough women yeah because i can i can tell you so many men have contacted me you know, telling me how wonderfully qualified they are to be on the show. Not a single woman has ever pitched me. Really? Right. So I go out and I find the only, many of these are no, women who shown up to my seminars, women who I know through um, other sword related things or whatever. Sometimes it's just like one thing I really use social media for is, is kind of skulking around the internet, looking for interesting women and people who are not middle-aged straight white men to invite onto my show. <laughs> um, like, you know, I recently had um, uh, Dr. Ashley Polasek on, who is a Sherlock Holmes expert, but also teaches Bolognese swordsmanship. So there's always a, there's always at least a plausible sword connection. <laughs> usually there's a plausible sword connection. But sometimes it's just, you know, an interesting person. Like, okay, If you contact some random person, especially if you're a bloke contacting a woman on, through the internet and they don't know you, right? Like, it would be super weird to say, hi, I think you're interesting. Um, could we just chat for an hour? That would be great. 
<laughs> that, everything changes if you do it publicly. Weirdo. <laughs> right. That's that's creepy stalker weirdo. But like, hello, I'm I'm interested in your work. I have a podcast. Would you like to come on the show? Totally different conversation. <laughs> like, so it's this fantastic pretext to talk to interesting people. Um, I see. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, yeah. <laughs> we had the same issue. Yes, yeah, same like, for us. <laughs> it was not exactly that we wanted to to give a like this was not the main reason we started a podcast but we also wanted to interview women that are important in the community that do stuff and so far i think we interviewed like four and it's uh, it's hard wow. because even if you ask them do they have to be able to speak german uh, yes yeah. that, that that's the main issue for us <laughs> i ah. wanted to add because um I mean, the women in uh, historical European martial arts are man minority and German-speaking women, um, there are much less. Right. Yeah, it's, it's easier when you're doing it in English. Um, yeah, and but there's all sorts of interesting academics who have produced books in German about, I don't know, medieval culture, medieval warfare, medieval sword stuff. Uh, I know because I've asked a few. Um, and... At least a couple of them, one of the reasons they didn't really want to come on the podcast is because they're spoken English. They Basically, they didn't feel confident in their spoken English. So I would be very much interested to hear it maybe after the show, who you contacted, who would be <laughs> possibly available in German, because uh, we also want to have academics on the show, and it's not easy to get them like the HEMA crowd knows the podcast. And if you ask them like, hey, do you want to come on the show? And they're like, oh, yeah. That uh, sounds good. I'm coming. And the academics are like, well, I don't know, podcast, hmm, maybe, maybe not. Yeah. Um, it really helps if the host has a PhD, <laughs> which doesn't help you guys at all. No. But it certainly helps me contact me because, because, you know, I have several times I go to the university that they work for, find their department contact the secretary of the department and say, look, I run this show, da, da, da. I'd be interested in, interv in interviewing so-and-so about their published work, so-and-so. Um, would you be, would you please forward my request? And then in my signature, it's clear that, you know, I'm sufficiently academic to have got a PhD, right? And that basically makes the secretary of the department feel comfortable forwarding my email. Hmm, Okay. That's not why I got a PhD, but it's just a, it's <laughs> one of those unexpected benefits. Yeah. I mean, you know, Herr Doctor, as you Germans say. <laughs> that would be an, an additional reason for um, people to make a PhD, like getting right. getting guests for a podcast. Totally. And and it's, it does seem to help because it just establishes your, I guess, seriousness in, in, in the academic field. Mm. True. Um Yes, I just don't have to r write in my signature that it's a PhD in electrical engineering. Um, no, you don't. You I, have I, a PhD. <laughs> I just, I just PhD write Dr. Michael yes. Sprenger, that's it. <laughs> Whenever you contact any university for any reason, throw in a PhD, you don't have to say that, you don't have to read out the title of your dissertation. It doesn't matter. Right, it really doesn't. It just means that that you are like you belong in the academic sphere. Yeah. Right. It's it's just a. It's like, it's like it's, it's like putting on a, a 
tuxedo to go to the office. It just <laughs> yeah. makes me look like a lot. You're you're not academic rubbish. <laughs> honestly, honestly, I have met many people with PhDs who are academic rubbish, and many people <laughs> without who are academically way better than I am. Right? I mean, I've interviewed Dirk Hagedorn on my show. You must have had him on yourself. Yeah, yeah. Right. And dude, that dude has done vastly more academic work than I ever have in historical martial arts. And he has enough there for four PhDs and he hasn't got ridiculous. <laughs> right? I mean if, if 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 I had if I had the power to just to like bestow doctorates on worthy people, Dirk was one of the very first people like that. So yeah, it's 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 like the whole like any fool can write a book, many fools do. But as we were saying earlier, it's easy to confuse an author with an authority. Um, so, you know, and it's, you know, so, spent any time in academia, you know, plenty of videos get PhDs. Yeah, I mean, so the tip to use the PhD when contacting academics is already a pretty good tip. So, yeah, good that we get together and exchange. <laughs> Right, uh, Dr. Michael, there we go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> next, next time I will actually try it. <laughs> Yeah, it, it just, it just, basically, you just want to make people feel comfortable. Like, like one of the things, I don't know if you guys do this, but when I invite someone on the show for an interview, I tell them I will send them questions in advance. They can add questions they want, stuff they want to talk about or decline any question. Um, I mean, I don't know if you listen to my show that often, but um, I have some standard questions that I ask everyone and some of my guests don't get asked that question and that's because they've just decided they don't want to be asked that question and I just don't ask it to them. That's fine. And then I always send them the recording in advance so they can check it to make sure that it's, you know, they're comfortable with it before it goes live. And mm -hmm. maybe one in five, one in ten, something like that, ask for something to be changed. Um, but again, it's all about just making them feel comfortable coming on the show and then talking about anything because they know they can cut it out afterwards so they don't have to worry about saying something extremely rude about some historical martial arts person or, or <laughs> their boss or whatever else because they can just cut it out later. Yeah, we typically don't send questions in advance because we always tell people it's not an interview, like it's a, we're doing right. some talking, like it's a, just a nice dialogue. Um, As we do now, yep. <laughs> right. yeah. So, why did you guys start your show? Ooh, the the why is is actually a very good question. It was in the beginning of 2020. Right. Uh, more than two years now. Yeah, so your show and, is a bit older than mine. And um, I, it was it was pre-corona, so no one was talking really seriously about the the corona issue, mm -hmm. and. Um, I remember myself like we right before it. Yeah. I remember myself <laughs> scrolling through Spotify podcasts and searching for some HEMA um, and, and fencing related stuff. And I couldn't really find something that way. And I thought, yeah, man, why not? Um, what's, why isn't there a, a HEMA podcast or a, a German-speaking historisch fechten podcast? And um, somehow the first person uh, who came to my mind was Alex. And I, I wrote him a message. Uh, what do you think about starting a HEMA podcast? And um, Alex's uh, answer um, 
maybe he could give <laughs> Alex. You can can answer yourself what you <laughs> what you said that time. Well, basically, at the point you wrote me, I was already thinking about starting a podcast for like a month or so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Because okay. I get, I like I was at so many Hima events and I had watched so many Hima talks and read books and. It's uh, often, if it's not academic work, it's not reproduced. Sometimes it's filmed, which is good, but there's so much knowledge out there that could be easily shared, but no one did it. And it kind of annoyed me and it nagged me that this was circulating inside the scene, but no one who knew who, who told who something. Like there's some implicit knowledge, yeah. but the new guy, the new guy has no chance to learn this. He has to stick in the scene for 10 years and maybe he had enough conversations to learn the stuff himself. But this is not skill, this is knowledge and it's easy to transfer it like with a podcast. And uh, yeah, I thought this was what was missing from the German Hema scene because there's a lot of uh, knowledgeable people, for example, the Kagedon. And sure. why not have them on and let them talk about what they knew? And you get a crash course and something in like an hour, or hour and a half. And then, yeah, so it was an easy answer as uh, stuck, yes. Yes, and uh, the, it was, it actually, it was fitting perfectly because um, Alex said to me that, yes, but I don't want to do that um, audio mixing and um, stuff like that. Yeah, it's a pain in the ass. And I said, well, I like to do it. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> well, you can do mine then. Brilliant. That's, Excellent. Okay. That's, that's something um, which I had in in the, in my uh, uh, studies. Yeah. Um, as uh, in electrical engineering, there was also like a lot of um, uh, signal works stuff like that. Wow. And, super lucky. Um, Yeah, because I knew I knew absolutely nothing, right? One of my <laughs> early episodes, I think it was one with Kaya Sadowski. It went out with Kaya was like super quiet, and I was quite <laughs> loud, and it was just impossible to listen to. And some people like contacted me with helpful suggestions as to what I could do, and then I was like, "Oh shit! If I'm actually going to do this, I have to do this perhaps to a better standard." And so, um, one of the guys on my mailing list is uh, an audio engineer, and I hired him to basically teach me. So we had a Zoom call and we opened up Audacity and he taught me what I need to do to bring my audio engineering skills up to the basic minimum standard to produce yeah. listening to podcasts, <laughs> right? And I'm still at that basic minimum standard of producing listenable podcasts. I think the first couple uh, of episodes yeah. have to be horrible, especially when it comes to audio quality or else you're starting too late. Like you need to get a feel for it That's, if this well, yeah. is actually yeah. a thing and then learn the skill. Actually, yeah. our, our first episodes, they were horrible too, because I was um, experimenting with the um, the tools that Audacity provides. Right. And um, so I didn't find the uh, the ones I use now at the, in the first like five, six, seven episodes. Right. Um, but from then, it, uh, it was much better. Yeah, and like, um, yeah. So go ahead. Yeah, just uh, wanted to uh, um, the uh, tell the or explain the, the the next part from how Schwertgeflüster started because Alex said, um, yeah, but we have to do it professionally, not like uh, okay. not only putting this on on YouTube um, stuff like that, but 
making a real website and putting it on Spotify, Apple, yeah, 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 stuff yeah. like that. And I thought, um, okay, can you do it? And he said, yes, that's something I can do. And so Alex made the, makes the website and the, the upload and stuff like that. And that's um, how, we, how we interact quite well. Yeah, I, I got about maybe 20 episodes in and I was like, okay, I want to keep this going, but I just don't have the mental bandwidth to do it on my own. And so I put a call out on the on my email list. And actually, one of my friends who lives like six blocks that way, um, sort of said, yes, oh, I, I could do that. And so <laughs> she does transcriptions, does the uploads, um, the show notes. She writes the show notes. She does all of that stuff. Gets That's everything nice. uploaded to all the various places. And obviously I pay her because, you know, this is paid work. But yeah, it, I, I couldn't sustain it on my own because I just don't have the energy for it. Because it is, I'm, I don't generally do um, sort of long-term projects. Like a book, if a book takes a really long time, it might take me four years to write. And then it's done and it's out and it's done and I can forget about it. Kids, they're a much longer project, but that's a bit different. <laughs> you kind of you have biological wiring that helps with that. Um, but yeah, in my sort of day to day, none of my projects are require a kind of weekly commitment. And that, that's so funny coming from an author, <laughs> like <laughs> right. Well, but it, but it's true. Like you know, it it matters that I produce books fairly regularly. Yeah. But it doesn't matter if I do any any work on a particular book in a particular month. Yeah, okay, right? I can see so that. Very so very often, yeah, you know, a, a book that takes two years to write, probably there's a month of tinkering around with it, three months of forgetting about it altogether, <laughs> another week of tinkering around with it, three months, six months maybe of not even thinking about it or just thinking about it off and on, and then two months of intense sort of ah oh, right okay now it's ready boom. Yeah, and that's when most of it gets written. Then forget about it for a month, let it sit. Then maybe spend a week editing it. Then send it off to the editor, and then it's in, in the kind of production process, which is like the straightforward bit where you, you send it off to various professionals for layout and get cover design done and do all the publishing side of things, which is which doesn't require much creative thought. Um, but the book itself, it's not this much every day, this much every week, this much every month at all. It's It's intense bursts followed by yeah. periods where I'm thinking about something else altogether. It's interesting that you do it like uh, that. Whereas the podcast, I mean that, it has yeah. to be. So yeah, the podcast has to be every bloody week because it have yeah. these <laughs> things have to be regular, right? So I don't do it that way. I don't do it that way at all. All right, I do like I usually have maybe eight or ten episodes in the bag. Like the way I just when I started, I was like, okay, I will not launch the first episode until I have six recorded and ready to go. Yeah, that's a because if I have six recorded and ready to go, I can take six weeks off and still get the next one out if I need to. And in the end, it went so easy at the beginning. I had 10 in the bag before I launched the first one. And, you know, twice now, I've got down to having maybe two in the bag. And then I think, do I want to continue the podcast or not? And I, so far, twice have said, yes, I do. And then I've scurried about finding people and interviewing them and making the episodes and stuff. And, you know, right now I've got, I think I, I had a period like that just a few weeks ago. And I was like, am I going to keep this going? And since then I've re done 
five recorded interviews and I've got another four scheduled. So yes, it's definitely keeping going. So you're questioning it because you have, it's too stressful if you only have two episodes. Did I get that right? Um, no, I'm, I'm, I question everything every now and then. Okay. So mm -hmm. like every, every project, um, I'm like, do I really want to do this? Do I really want to do this? So like with the podcast, it, I, I scheduled a bunch of stuff to kind of get me through over the summer because I was going away with the family for holidays and, you know, doing other things. I wasn't going to have any time for doing anything. So everything was scheduled in July. So I didn't do anything with the podcast at all in August. And then I was like, right, do I, do I want to keep this going? And I thought, actually, yes, I do. And so I, then I you know, contacted a bunch of people and arranged interviews and, you know, so it, It actually, it actually got to the point where there was the e episode that had been scheduled, ready to go out, and I had one further episode recorded. That's how close to the wire it got. <laughs> and I was like, no, no, I'm going to do it. Um, because, so, you know, yeah. at the end of the day, I'm, I'm, I'm like 124 episodes or something, right? It's a lot, right? Yeah, it's so it, on a weekly schedule, itself, right? It yeah, yeah. And it, by itself, it is a, a large and valuable body of work which if i decide to stop that's still a useful service to the community that people will hopefully find and continue listening to and getting value from the years to come right and more than half of the guests are women and we have you know people from all, all sorts of demographics and stuff as well so we have like this this broad spectrum picture of the historical martial arts community there right so stopping would be okay yeah But it doesn't, to me, it doesn't quite feel like we've got there yet. So I'm just going to keep going for another round. And then, I don't know, maybe in three months or six months, whatever, I'll go, do I really want to do this? And the answer will be no. So, Who knows? so uh, we, we started out with doing weekly episodes. And so, we are usually just one or two episodes ahead. But mm -hmm. yeah, it was too hard. And we switched to uh, every two weeks. But still, we do around a third of our episodes with a guest and two thirds are me and Michael talking because scheduling oh, with that's a lot easier to schedule. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's like, a lot easier to schedule. How are, you, how are you doing it? Because that's a lot of work. I mean, you need to synchronize yeah. calendars, um, give them some information uh, uh, beforehand, uh, okay. how did they prepare and so on. Very important thing to remember. I don't have a day job. This is my part of my day job. Right? Yeah. So, you know, I make my living from teaching historical martial arts one way or the other. And yeah, okay, the podcast makes no money. Um, I have some lovely Patreon supporters who are super kind and lovely and send me money every month to help with the podcast expenses. And that covers maybe half of the expenses, right? The actual money that goes out. Because remember, I'm paying an assistant to do all the admin stuff. Um, and then there's hosting and all the other stuff that goes with it, right? So it doesn't make money. Um, but fortunately, my books and my courses tend to make enough money that I don't have to worry about this particular project being by itself, you know, financially worthwhile, right? So it's, it is just, I think the historical martial arts community needs this because <laughs> it is still far too many middle-aged white dudes like me um and so uh yeah it's it's worth doing for for the sake of the community itself it's worth doing so i find the energy and get on with it 
I would have thought you would have to prioritize even further if you if this is like Michael and I have a day job, so there's money coming in, but you have to do a lot of uh, other stuff. Or are you doing it? I'm not sure if you yeah. have to do it like this, but uh, I would think that there's a point where you say, well, I could write another book which has generate some income or I do more of the podcast. Okay, but the the kind of creative energy that the podcast requires is yeah. different to the kind of creative energy writing a book requires, right? So they don't come out of quite the same energy budget. You know, in the same way that, you know, doing, you know, if you if you did a million push-ups yesterday, you can still do your rapier footwork today because although your shoulders are shot, you're less <laughs> <fine>. <laughs> right? So, like, I usually schedule my podcast interviews for the afternoon where I've done my hard-thinking creative stuff in the morning already. And then in the afternoon, I have an interview, which is basically me just chatting to an interesting person, right? And I often have a little nap before I have an interview, right? Because, you know... Kids from yep. school, or whatever, and you know, the house is quiet. Have a little nap, then have the interview, yep. and then that's it's it's not it's not coming out of it's not usually coming out of time I would normally spend writing. I would normally spend that time if I wasn't interviewing. I would be doing something that is not sitting at the computer and you know typing. It would be maybe woodwork in my shed or admin or whatever else. I see. So. So How would you describe the energy level that yeah, you yeah, that, use? Yeah, that was my question too. No, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sorry, I, I didn't catch the question. Yeah. So, how? What kind of energy do you use for podcasting? Like, how would you describe it? Um, okay, there's different phases, right? There's looking for people to interview. Yeah, is probably the hardest bit in terms because it requires it requires sort of focused attention and analysis and then it requires crafting the correct approach if I don't know them. I mean, if they're friends and it's funny, if any of my friends are listening to this and they're wondering why they haven't been asked yet, it's because I keep a reserve of people I know I can just call and say, would you please come on my show? And, <laughs> and I can kind of trust them to say yes. And you know, so, that, so, so I, I kind of like um, I keep those in reserve and I try and look for people who you would not expect to hear from, right? Like, I mean, perhaps the most uh, extreme example of this is I've had uh, Ariel Anderson, who is a BDSM model, on. And because, get this, this is, this is classic, right? I was scrolling through Twitter looking for guests, and I saw this woman naked doing the splits, <laughs> right? And, and I chatted to the camera or something. And on the wall behind her head was a pair of antique French foils. <laughs> <laughs> huh. Probably not what other people saw in that Why? picture. Pro probably not. Probably not. Why does this very flexible naked woman have antique French foils? <laughs> and, and so, you know, I, I contacted her and I, and, and I asked her. I, I think I may have even put it in the, the Twitter comment. Like, what are those swords on the wall behind you? <laughs> <laughs> and and so we sort of she ended up following me on Twitter and we sort of we would chat back and forth every now and then. Um she's a really nice person. And then I was like she 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 said something about uh, I knew that she had some um like uh, stage combat training. Okay. She'd mentioned it at some point. 
And I thought, well, okay, there's a plausible sword connection there. But she said something about about representation for sex workers, right? And I was like, well, hang on, my podcast is entirely all about representation. So I invited her onto the show. And she was like, really? Okay. And we had this fantastic conversation. She's absolutely lovely. Um, you know, she's since been around for dinner with you know, my kids and my wife and everything. And we, we, we all just get on famously. Um, but it's, the world is wider than many people wish to see. And so the whole point of the show is, is breadth. And why not have everyone? She's, firstly, she's interesting. It was a fantastic conversation. And we even went into things like um, investing in property <laughs> so that when she can no longer do BDSM modeling for a living, because apparently it's actually quite hard work, particularly someone like the bondage stuff. It's quite stressful, physically stressful. Um, you know, what's she going to retire on? Well, yeah. so she has this portfolio of, of apartments that she rents out. It's, it's a fascinating conversation. Um, okay, I slightly lost my thread. How did we get onto Ariel? It was oh, uh, yeah, different different kinds of energy. Yeah, yeah. So looking looking for people is then then you know, figuring out how you're going to contact them if you don't know them, um, and then making those contacts and then coming up doing the research, coming up with the questions. That's that's often the stickiest bit for me because really I'd like them to just show up and we just chat and that'd be great. But I promise questions and so I. I do the research and I come up with it, but it feels a bit kind of weird doing that just because it's, it's like you go to their LinkedIn profile, you go to their <laughs> but Facebook like stalking them professionally, whatever, of course. You, yeah, exactly. 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 And I'd always try to find a question that they probably haven't been asked before. Right. Something yeah. a little bit different. Um, and also if, if I don't know them, something that will demonstrate to them that I've done the research. Because again, it makes them feel like I'm taking them seriously. They're more likely to be comfortable. They're more likely to feel like they're being respected. They're more likely to open up and actually talk to me. Um, so that's probably the hardest bit. Then there's the um, scheduling is a pain. Yeah, <laughs> it's a lot of everything. pain. But you know, it's just, that's, that's just admin. Um, the actual interview itself, it's hugely dependent on the guests, right? Some guests, you just welcome off the show and they just talk. And it's brilliant. And all you have to do is just put in a, a little anecdote or a little question or something every now and then. And you yeah. just get this, this fascinating, erudite, articulate, easily transcribed conversation. Other guests? Um, well, awkward pause. <laughs> and, and, and yeah, I have, I have in the past, there's this fantastic thing in Audacity I discovered because I had this one guest. Very lovely guest, very interesting person. Not, not a, not a sort of steady conversationalist. Like to put in long pauses. I put it. There's this thing on Audacity where you can trim any, yeah, any the silence. silence. <laughs> yes, it's longer than a certain than yes. a certain length. You can trim it down to that length, right? Oh. And when I hit that button in a one hour twenty minute episode we got down to just under an hour <laughs> <laughs> and i mean it makes the people sound smarter because if you have things that right. you really need to think about and suddenly you just spurt them out like it came up to you in the yeah. moment yeah it makes yeah. it sound like oh totally, my god totally sovereign know so bam, much. Bam, bam. <laughs> yeah 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 um yeah then, like the editing isn't that hard it doesn't take very long because again i don't i don't usually go through and do you know cutting out the 
sounds and the ums and I don't normally touch those. I just I just let it run as it is. I just run a filter curve, um, mostly to take out the hissing s sounds. Um, normalize loudness. Do any noise cancellation that needs to be done, and then run a limiter on it so it's all within. So it's all a comfortable listening volume. And that's that's what Gethin Edwards taught me in that session that, that I hired him to teach. And you know, and then it comes out at okay, it's free. So it has to be good enough, but it doesn't have to be stellar. Yeah, especially I, I because it seems the, it's more natural if you have those arms and in I mean it, it can be too much right. if you have someone that just says, I um did um this um that in general it seems yeah. more natural, not as scripted as like a perfectly produced TV show or something. Yeah, exactly. Uh but you know, I've I've just produced an online course about how to teach historical martial arts. And that is mostly delivered as audio files because most of it is theory, right? Like, you know, how do you run a class? How do you plan a class? Um, what are you looking for when your students are doing these various things? Or, and that's, it's fundamentally theory. Yeah. Right. Because it's not, in, in when I'm, when I'm running a course that is, let's say, sword and buckler, I'll on video show a technique. I say, okay, go practice that. And there'll be a thing saying hit pause. And they're supposed to go away and practice. And when they come back, they hit play and they get the next bit, right? That's not how you can, you can't do how to teach like that because they're not, they're not experiencing the course while they're teaching a class because that would be weird. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so it's, it's delivered as audio files primarily with some video where necessary and loads of handouts and PDFs and whatnot. But the audio, I went and hired a professional recording studio yeah. and an engineer And that audio is as clean and as perfect as I can make it. Yes. Right. Because people are paying for it. Yeah. I, I had a conversation with a, a friend of mine and uh, we were talking about um, giving online courses. It was during Corona time and um, like giving workshops online. Mm -hmm. And he said, you can have um, shitty video. Uh, you can have no video at all but you have to have good sound otherwise people are yeah. jumping off and right. so uh, it's actually a absolutely right decision to put as much effort on audio yeah. as possible and like in my early online video courses i just used the sound i mean i i had enough sense to put a lavalier mic on and record it onto my phone and then stitch it together with a video so at least it was recorded locally but i didn't know how to do any kind of proper like audio care hmm. right but every every the video stuff i've produced since starting the podcast right i get that audio and i clean it out the same way i clean out the podcast audio and stitch it back together so the audio is better on the videos now than it was yes <laughs> yeah, perfect <laughs> two years ago I mean, also, it's uh, noticeable that from the English Shima podcast, I mean, there are more than just yours. You have decent audio quality and you have uh, constant audio quality. It's not like one episode is fine, the next is yeah. kind of right. off the charts. And many of the other English Shima podcasts uh, don't have decent audio quality. Um, this is, a, I find this a bit strange because many of these things you can do automatically with the tool, like you need to find a button and that's it. And yeah. there are even tools that do this automatically, like some web service that you can pay a bit of money. And like, 
that people record with bad microphones and loud environments don't uh, equalize the, the loudness level. And I mean, you can do that the first couple of episodes, but some of those podcasts are 50 episodes in and I don't get why they don't take a bit more care about the audio quality because that's the only thing that really okay, matters in a podcast. You, right. <laughs> yeah. I can tell you why I did right? It's because I don't really hear it. I am not a very sort of audio, audio person, right? I am quite happy if I'm putting music on while I'm cooking or something, I will put it, have it on my phone, some MP3 or whatever, and stick it in a pint glass to amplify it a bit. And that's fine, right? I know people who literally choose their furniture for its uh, <laughs> audio uh, acoustic properties yeah. so that when their incredibly expensive and beautiful hi-fi is trying to reproduce this incredibly perfectly produced sound stuff, their furniture doesn't mess it up by bouncing the sound around in an annoying way. Right? Yeah. That's that's how I am with swords. It's not how I am with audio. Um, so it, it took, like, I think it was the second or third episode where um, several people, because I, I got it particularly bad in that one. It was the one with the Kaya Sadowski. Um, and, you know, one chap, Joe in Boston, Joe, if you're listening, thank you very much. This was extremely useful. He literally, he said, okay, download Audacity. And then he sent me a series of screenshots of what I could do to fix that episode. Right. Yeah, really. So I, so I That's did really that. nice. Yeah, yeah. 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 Right. I did that and that made the episode and I re-uploaded the audio. So it was improved. Right. Yeah. And then I thought, hang on. The people who listen to this, enough of them actually care that I have to up my game. And so that's when I hired Gethin to actually teach me how to do a competent, basic job of getting the audio sorted out. So I'm guessing that the people who are producing these other podcasts, which have inconsistent sound quality like that, either their audience doesn't include useful people like Joe, who will say, actually, your audio is shit, guy, you need to fix it. Um Or, and perhaps they don't, um, perhaps they don't have the budget to hire somebody to teach them how to do it properly, right? Or maybe yeah, it's, it's some sort of combination of that. Yeah, um, I think you have to keep in mind where you, your listeners are going to listen to the podcast, for example, like when, when they're cooking or when they're doing something else, it might add some car. noise as well in the car, is, exactly. Uh, like a couple of months ago, I was... I had downloaded multiple episodes from um, basically all of the English email podcasts. I was doing a bit of research, like, do they have interesting guests, interesting topics, mm -hmm. maybe something we should cover as well. And I was driving in the car with my girlfriend and we tried to listen to some of the episodes. And I remember one very clearly where it was uh, three folks talking and it was a interesting topic i was really curious to hear what they had to say but the loudness difference was so large that i had to constantly move and turn the volume knob to be able oh, to hear the one and not get the, my ears blown out by the loudest one and it yeah. was such a shame because the, con the conversation was interesting but after 15 minutes i was like this couldn't go on it was not possible to actually physically right. listen to it but, and this is but, such a shame yeah here's the thing i am not an audio person as i've said so I actually do my audio editing visually because I'm I'm looking at the the kind of the that kind of jaggedy line that goes up and down that is the kind of the, the sound represented visually in Audacity. I don't even know what the name of that the thing is. The waveform. The waveform, that's it, thank you. Right? And I do the things I need to do to make the waveform look right. 
and occasionally, occasionally, you know, I'll 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 listen to a bit and it'll go, and I'll go, oh yeah, that doesn't sound right. And you know, I'm getting better at actually listening to it. But yeah, I, I actually edit my, I do I do my audio engineering visually, which is completely utterly wrong and stupid, but it, it it produces the necessary result. But I will never be a, a competent audio engineer. I just don't listen to my ears hard enough. Yeah, but as you say, it's free content. So if it's good enough, it's good enough. Like people can't expect everything to be perfect if you don't earn money with it. Right. Yeah. Um, so you guys, um, do you fence together? Whereabouts actually are you? I know you're both in Germany, but are you in the same sort of area? Or yeah, actually not at all. We are okay. like uh, 500 kilometers um, away from each other. Okay, so Michael, where are you? I uh, I I live in Dresden. Okay, I've heard of Dresden. There's nice China there. I've heard. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Dresden, China, it's famous. Dresden, what? China. China, like yeah. porcelain. Porcelain. Ah, uh, yes, yes. Um, but actually, it's more. Um, it belongs to a um, city next to Dresden. It's called Meissen. Meissen yeah. porcelain. That's um, very famous. Yeah, but in, in England, we're not terribly educated. We just call it Dresden, China. Yes. Actually. <laughs> <laughs> uh, how about you, Alexander? Where about you? I'm in Ulm. Where is that? Yeah, I know that. <laughs> no one knows Ulm. <laughs> it's between uh, Munich and Stuttgart. So okay. on, right on the border of Bavaria and Baden-Württemberg. And you get an Ulm fact right now because Ulm uh, has the highest church. No one, no one ever. <laughs> Alex had no one ever told before. <laughs> this okay, okay, well, let, yeah, but not to an English say, crowd. Okay, so say, sorry, say it again, Alexander. You were rudely interrupted by yeah. Michael. <laughs> Michael, stay quiet. <laughs> uh, Ulm has the highest church tower in the world, the Ulmer Minster. Ulm Minster is the highest church tower in the world. Yeah, no one knows this besides the people in Ulm and the people in Cologne because they have the second highest. <laughs> <laughs> and they're very, very jealous. Is I that, hope so. Is that, is that the <laughs> cathedral in Cologne? Yeah. Well, okay, I've got a story about that. In 2006, in April, I was in, um, I was teaching a seminar for Stefan Dijk in, who lives near Cologne. And we went into Cologne with my girlfriend at the time. And I thought, okay, I'm gonna. We're gonna go up the top of the cathedral. I, I told Stefan to make himself scarce and opened a little box with a ring in it, so he knew what was going on. So he would make himself scarce. <laughs> and I thought, at the top of Cologne Cathedral, I will propose to this woman, and and then this will be very romantic and 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 beautiful and nice. And of course, we went up into Cologne Cathedral, and it's full of graffiti and stuff, and it was absolutely <laughs> packed with irritating schoolchildren. <laughs> Right, yeah. So we got I all the top, and I, and I was just looking for a quiet spot to get down on one knee and everything, and and it, it wasn't going to happen. And <laughs> and so we came out, and I was like, oh, "Fuck, okay, what am I going to do now?" And then we were passing by a jeweler's shop, and my wife was like, "Oh, that's a very nice ring." Kind of that's when when a woman in that situation says something like that. That's basically a hint, hint. <laughs> that's a very nice ring guy. <laughs> so, so I just, I just pulled the box out. And I said, well, I've got a better one here. <laughs> well, there's, but what I should, I should have gone to Ulm. So I could have proposed at the top of the tallest <laughs> church tower in the world, but no, I, I slummed it in Cologne and even that didn't work. So it's quite go. nice. Up there, actually, actually, we have a lot of stuff. Yeah. We had our, 
our 16th wedding anniversary just last week. But I mean, the, the, the story is much better than proposing on the top of Kölner Dom. Um, yeah. Like, uh, I mean, I have a better one here. <laughs> That's <Yeah. laughs> great comeback. It was, it was just frustration. It was like, I'd be like trying to give her this bloody ring all morning. And I was like, oh, fuck it. There you go. <laughs> so this is something that is brought up regularly, like, oh, you know, that one time. No, 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 she was very pleased. So basically, she didn't really matter how it was delivered, so long as it was <laughs> delivered with the right intent, and that was fine. <laughs> I see. Uh, yeah, yeah. No, yeah. I mean, we have met before the podcast, and we fenced with each other, but we're not in the same club. And I think that actually helped, because since we do two-thirds of the episode together, if we also train to the same club, it would be too yeah, same. Definitely. We need to have a bit of conflict and a bit of a differing opinion. So what... Um, so systems and styles do you practice um, uh, for me it's a pretty straightforward um, old school Lichtenauer stuff like okay. um, uh, I, I prefer the, the stuff in the Peter von Danzig manual okay. and um, I, it's, it's mainly like a bit of grappling a bit of um, sword and buckler a um, bit of uh, dagger and longsword. So the, the, yeah. the main part, my... So classic medieval Lichtenauer yeah. Yeah. stuff. Excellent. Okay, and von Danzig for preference. It, that's a good choice. It's a solid, um, well-worked-out source. Uh, I'm very envious that you can actually read the German, though, because I can't read German, which is why I don't <laughs> yeah. the German stuff with any seriousness. Um, how about you, Alexander? Yeah, I used to do... Uh, pretty much the same thing old school Lichtenauer for the first 10 years of my HEMA career and uh, last year I switched to rapier I still teach longsword but I only fence rapier now Ooh, rapier what, yes. in what style um, I do read a lot of Giganti and uh, I tried Fabris okay. but I'm not flexible enough in the hip to actually do Fabris <laughs> Uh, but yeah, yeah, really, really at uh, your age. Yeah, I'm not. Okay, okay, dude, dude, you need to get your hamstrings sorted out because I would guess we've never met anything, so this is just a guess. I would guess that your problem with Fabris is not flexibility, is that your hamstrings are shorter than they should be. Yeah, probably. Right? Which is preventing you from keeping your spine in a neutral position while you're hinged at the hip forward as you need to be <coughs> for Fabris, right? So, um, Yes, there's, I have a I have a workout for hamstring flexibility that I will send you a link. You can put it in the show notes if anyone's listening wants to have a go at it. Um, so that if you if you get your hamstrings to their proper length, you shouldn't have. I mean, I'm 49. Oh, I will be in a couple of months, 48 at the moment. Um, I have no problem with Fabris's guard positions yeah. and strikes and stuff. I'm definitely um, trying out, but I'm not. 100% sure that this is easily fixable because I think since I'm like maybe eight or something, I was not able to touch the ground with uh, straight knees. Okay. So I really only started right. doing sport when I was 25 when I started HEMA. So I'm not sure how many, how much of the matter. damage has been done. It, 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 okay. It doesn't matter, right? Yeah. Because most, most of the flexibility we're talking about is in where the stretch reflex is in the muscle, right? So all you really have to do is over a period of weeks and months, reset the stretch reflex and allow the muscle to get longer. And then don't strain things too much for nine months to a year while your 
soft tissues, tendons and ligaments and what have you are getting used to this longer range of motion. But at no point should you be deliberately stretching tendons or ligaments. Okay. Right? You should only be stretching the muscle. And the muscle can take any amount of shit, right? They are astonishingly robust when it comes to handling training damage, right? The injuries that matter are the injuries to soft tissues like tendons and ligaments or injuries to joint capsules, um, cartilage, that sort of thing. A muscle can be trained to do almost anything. So you should just just consider it. Now, I have absolutely no business giving you any kind of historical fencing advice that you haven't asked for, but it's just one of those, you know, you get me on your show, I assume you're interested in my opinion, and so I just just dumped a whole lot of um, totally unsolicited advice. Yeah, feel free to do so. Apologize, but, but so have, what is have, the expectation? Have, like, how fast will, will I see some results at least? What do you think? Um, okay, when you're doing the kind of flexibility training that I'm talking about, you should notice significant increased range of motion, particularly in the beginning. Usually there's there's quite a big gain in the beginning and then it slows down a bit. Three weeks. Okay. Right. Four times a week for maybe 15, 20 minutes a time for maybe three or four weeks. And you should see noticeable difference. Okay. That's definitely a time frame I can try it out. Yeah. Yeah, then if, if you don't see any change in that time, then the problem with your getting into a fabric guard is not your hamstring flexibility, it's something else. And then what we should do is we should um, get on a thing so I can actually have a look at how you're moving and then we'll figure out what else it is. But nine times out of 10, problems with fabrics come from modern people sitting in chairs too much who have very short hamstrings. <laughs> yeah, well, that's uh, um, exactly what I do the whole time. Right, there we go. <laughs> so we'll see, we'll see. Um, yeah, so definitely going, you're going to give it a fan. try. Good. So you're a Giganti fan and a Fabris fan? Uh, Fabris so far, not a, not a Fabris fan because <laughs> if I can't go into the positions, not much of a fan. But he writes a lot of interesting stuff on tactics and so on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No uh, Capifero? Uh, I took a look at it and it's also interesting, but it uh, didn't dive any deeper. Okay. So you're a Giganti then, through and through. Uh, so far, yes, but I think it's kind of a liberal in a way to uh, look at Giganti. I mean, uh, do you know uh, Rob Giles, okay. the American uh, rapier fencer? Uh, yeah, I know him. So I was at the European Games in um, Minsk, like uh, 2019, yep. and I saw him fence there. And at that point, I dabbled a bit in rapier, but I wasn't really serious about it. And the, the stuff he was doing with his left hand, like all the waving and, and the finger movement and so on, it, yeah. it kind of spoke to me. It was like, oh, you can do that. Like, I like to mentally manipulate opponents while fencing. And wait, if I have a yeah. free hand, I can do this even more. This is great. I'm going to try this out. So <laughs> I'm kind of looking okay. forward to receiving his book and seeing what he has to say about it. Okay. Yeah, it's I've I've seen his book and he's a he's fundamentally a sport fencer because what he cares about is winning tournaments. He doesn't actually care about historical accuracy or duels or that sort of stuff. He is all about winning tournaments and he's very good at it. Um, so that's his entire focus. Do you think so he would agree with basically this? Basically, a um, I, I think it's it's unarguable based on his book. I mean, for instance, in his school they have a ranking system and yeah. the only way to to move up through the ranks is to win tournaments okay uh, that's pretty straightforward right so there's no question that, that what what <laughs> what he values most is 
success in tournaments because literally the only way to advance through the ranks of your school is to win tournaments with certain number of participants. So like in the lower ranks, you know, if there's only 10 people in the pool in, in your tournament then and you win that, that's fine to get up to like the first grade. And then, you know, by the time you get to the higher grades, there have to be at least 80 people in the tournament or whatever. I'm, I'm, I'm not quoting, I'm just giving you the idea of, of how that tournament structure, how that grading structure works. And it's, it's right there. You'll see when, when the book arrives, it's, it's, he's absolutely explicit about it. I mean, right. he doesn't pretend that he's doing anything else. <laughs> I see. Um, fair enough. Yeah, <laughs> yeah totally fair, fair enough. enough. And, and the thing is, honestly, honestly, the one thing the historical martial arts tournament scene could really use is a dose of like serious competitive professionalism. There's a reason why, why Robert wins everything. It's because he takes it very seriously and he trains very seriously for the tournament. So how, do you, how, how do you see the, um, uh, the, the historical European martial uh, tournament scene? Um, if not professional, what, what is your, your view on the, on the tournament scene? Um, okay, it's not professional because no one is making a living by winning tournaments. All right. right. In the same way, a professional tennis player makes a living by doing well in tournaments, right? And they make a living from prize money and from endorsements and that sort of thing, okay? So there is a very clear path to being a professional tennis player, which involves entirely winning, well, being good in tournaments. Um, and then there's a sort of side track, an alternative career path in professional tennis, which is being a professional tennis coach. And sometimes people go from one track to the other, but sometimes they just go on those two separate tracks because the qualities that make a good coach are not necessarily the qualities that make for a good competitor, for instance. Um, I mean, like if you look at like, I don't know, gymnastics, for instance, and look at the coaches, the coaches, there's absolutely no way that, um, what's that, that American gymnast, um, Biles. Biles is her surname? I've forgotten her first name. I Steph don't know. Something like that. Anyway, I mean, she's one like, gold medals and Olympics and whatnot, right? Unbelievable gymnast. Watch her stuff and you go like, uh, holy shit, what's that? <laughs> Human beings are not supposed to be able to do this. There's no way on earth her coach could do that, right? But her coach can get her to do that and she wins medals with it and that's the point, right? Yep. Um, but the, okay, the historical, the historical martial arts tournament scene is a fantastically useful thing for everyone, whether they take part in it or not, because it provides a place for people who want tournaments to go. It provides a... And I think most, I would say, but perhaps every martial artist should have tournament experience in their training at some point in their career, because it teaches you things that nothing else will teach you. Um, and it also creates a market for all sorts of useful equipment. You know, fencing jackets and whatever. Um, but it's the issue with it is that it creates artifacts. The rule sets create artifacts and the, the choice of equipment creates artifacts that basically mean that the, the historical fencing tournament scene isn't really historical fencing at all most of the time, right? It's mostly tournament fencing. Right. It's basically it's, they've created their own sport. Right. And that's yes. a fantastically good thing to do. And I have no quarrel with it whatsoever. Um, but the problem is that firstly, they haven't sorted out the safety. Right. 
you absolutely should not be doing longsword in a tournament with a fencing mask on. It will not protect you from concussions. It is just a disaster waiting to happen. The plastic gauntlets are totally inadequate. People get their fingers broken and stuff all the time. Um, there isn't a proper education of fencers to be able to handle the grappling stuff. And so either they don't allow the grappling stuff, which basically is totally anti-historical, <laughs> or they allow the grappling stuff and it, it creates safety issues for people who don't have that training. Um, it's a very kind of complex phenomenon that has all these fantastic things in it. I think really what, what, what would be ideal is if they just drop the H, right? And they don't even try to make it historical because it isn't. Mm. There's nothing historical about it. The weapons yeah. aren't historical. The equipment's not historical. The rules aren't historical, whatever. And then it can become its own thing and become a really well-structured, well-run tournament environment where martial artists can go to have that experience. That's, uh, that's uh, super interesting that you mentioned that because I had a discussion with a, uh, another trainer uh, like a week ago and we talked about um, like historical fencing and sports fencing. And he said, well, actually, there should be sports fencing and you should divide it in the Olympic like yeah. foil, epee, and saber, yeah. and uh, like other weapons, longsword, yeah. rapier, rapier longsword, whatever. Yeah, I agree. stuff like that. And uh, but that's uh, as you say, it's sports fencing. We we created uh, an a sport, and we we're fencing like sports fencers with different rules. But I mean, it's about uh, it's about winning uh, in in the environment of a certain rule set. Hmm. And um, it's just other weapons. Right. And again, see, when I say things like that, people often interpret that as I'm somehow against the tournament scene. I'm not. I'm, I just wish it would become its own thing properly and get a bit more professional yeah. about how it's how it's run so that it's more consistent, right? Like a sport fencing tournament with Olympic fencing is fundamentally the same wherever you go. The rules are the same. The equipment's the same. The safety regulations are the same it's established right and because it's so well established and has been established for so long you can be a professional fencer you can win chunks of money right and actually you know and when the stakes are high you get a different level of pressure right which is just you know fascinatingly useful to anyone who's interested in training martial arts right because one of the biggest problems we face is how do we how do we recreate pressure in a way that doesn't kill people yeah <laughs> right um, and, you know, one, one simple way to do that is just to raise the stakes. Like, let's say you, you and I mean, I hope if I'm, I'm ever in, in Dresden, we'll, we'll cross swords in a friendly and fun fashion and whack each other about the head and shoulders with long swords. Because why not? Right. And that would be fun and interesting and useful. If we wanted to put some pressure on it, we could simply say, well, okay, um, we each put, I don't know, 500 euros down and yeah. the winner keeps it. Right. And that would suddenly, it would change it completely, right? And it would change it from being collegial to being truly competitive, right? Um, you know, there's, there's all sorts of ways that we can, you know, I'm not suggesting that that would be a sensible thing to do because I have no particular interest in, in competitive fencing anymore, you know. I did my sport fencing in the 80s and 90s. I don't need to do it in the 2020s. <laughs> um, but, you know, when the stakes are high, people behave differently. 
Um, like I had this, I was at Lord Baltimore's Challenge in July, fantastic event. And the real function of the event is to get the SCA and historical martial arts people together because we have a lot more in common than we do have differences. And the area of overlap is enormous. And so it was, um, the first day was all tournament. And, you know, the way you know, I was a ring director, the way I run a ring is um, I don't, you know, if, if, the, if whoever got the hit is not absolutely clear, I just throw it out. I don't discuss it. I don't try and figure out what happened because the point of all this fencing experience is to get better at fencing. And when a really good fencer is up against someone who's much less good than they are and they just effortlessly control their opponent's blade and hit them however they like, it's obvious to everyone what just happened. There's no question. So in in the tournament, if the purpose of the tournament is to create better fences, as I think it should be, if there isn't a major cash prize, um, then the you know I'm not going to waste everybody's time going, well, actually, okay, according to the rules, then maybe this thing coming over here has slightly more priority. I think of a shit, right? And I explain to the fences, you must assume that I am drunk, blind, and biased against you. You have to make it so that I cannot deny you the hit because it's so obvious even to a drunk blind biased person where the hit went and if you don't make it that obvious i'm just going to throw it out right and it was great i mean we got through so much fencing i mean i personally presided over it must have been 70 or 80 bouts that day right that was a long day um, <laughs> i can imagine but yeah but there was lots and lots of fencing going on and because they knew they couldn't get away with scrappy shit right we got some really good fencing out of these people right because the environment we created demanded it you're not going to score a hit if it's unclear right so get control of the situation and hit your opponent in such a way that is obvious um which creates better fences yeah but there were some people there from the historical martial arts crowd who were expecting something more like a classic should we say hema tournament <laughs> um where the, there are coaches like who get to discuss like judgment calls with the referees and whatnot. It's like I'm not having any of that. I don't care who I don't care who actually got the hit. If it's if they didn't clearly control their opponent's weapon such that it's obvious to everyone who got the hit, I don't care. Do it again. Do it better. Right. Um, and so the the environment that we create when we're running a tournament pretty much determines the behaviour you're going to get, and it determines whether people come out of it as better fencers or better competitors, which are not necessarily the same thing. Um, sorry, that, I went on a bit of a ramble. I kind of lost my thread. What were we talking about? <laughs> we're talking about uh, HEMA tournaments and becoming professional. Uh, the, right. the, the, the HEMA tournament scene becoming more professional and what would it make or what would it take to yeah, become a professional HEMA right. tournament Fighter, right. fencer. Okay, okay, I have a little anecdote there, right? Um, when I was producing my book, Theory and Practice of Historical Martial Arts, as I normally do when I publish a book, I um, sent out some copies of the, I was hoping, somewhat finished draft to a bunch of um, beta readers, right? And it had a section in it on how to win tournaments, which is really, really simple and straightforward. What you do is you look at the rules, you figure out how you're going to, apply your strengths to winning according to those rules and you watch carefully how your most likely opponents who are going to get you kicked out of the tournament because they're going to beat you how do they fence and you construct 
a strategy for defeating those specific people and you train that with your coach and the whole thing is soulless and not historical martial artsy at all but that's how actual competitors actually win actual serious tournaments right you only have to read johan hammenberg's fa 2.0 to get an inside track on how 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 he got two olympic gold medals right it was he was so dedicated to that that he knew that he was most likely to face one of his FA teammates in the final for the men's individual, right? And so every time he fenced that person in training, he used a particular approach. And then in the final, he had a completely different pr- approach prepared. So that guy was expecting him to fence a certain way and he slaughtered him because he fenced in a completely different way that he had prepared because he had anticipated this moment of being in the Olympic final for the men's single he knew it was likely to be this particular teammate and so he created a strategy for defeating that particular person and at the end of it the guy came out saying you didn't fetch like that in practice and he replied that wasn't practice <laughs> right? it's like, like dude take it seriously um yeah be content with your silver medal um and and so i said so i had basically summarized the approach that serious competitors take to winning serious tournaments in the book and one of the most significant bits of feedback I got from it was like, guy, that's horrible. <laughs> um, uh, it's like, 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 it's just horrible. And, and, and so I added a big chunk of, okay, that's how you win tournaments, but this is how you should use them for your development as a martial artist, right? Which is not the same approach at all. Uh, so speaking of books, um, I think you mentioned yeah. in the podcast with uh, Daniel Chaquet that you get around half your incomes with the royalties and the sales from my books, books. something like this. So yeah. did the something podcast like actually help you? Like, did you see some other benefits besides the direct um, Patreon and so on? Like more book sales or whatever, or getting it's more known? It's very scene? hard. Okay, it's very hard to say. So far, I don't think so. Okay. Uh, I And I say that because, you know, every now and then I do try and actually sell a book through the podcast. Like I'll, I'll run a discount on one of my books on my online store and people can go and buy it. And so far, not a single person has ever used one of those discount codes. <laughs> okay. How often have you tried? So that's, so, um, off, often enough. And the thing is, it goes out to enough people that if that was going to work, it yeah. would have worked at least once by now. Yeah. Okay. Right? So, so, unexpected so what you do is you tell the discount code in the podcast and um then you No, what i what i do is is i say i create what's called a pretty link which is a redirectable link that is simple and easy to like for example the last one was um guywindsor.net forward slash tsg for the sword guy 22 for the year right so they could type guywindsor.net forward slash TSG22 and that would direct them to this place where I was selling actually the audiobook of theory and practice because I think you know you like listening to audio about swords maybe you want an audiobook about swords sword fighting whatever um, there you go and not a single person has used that discount <laughs> not one. I mean the method right. is sort of because and that's how other advertisers track their revenue when they do podcast advertisement right exactly exactly and I don't know what it is. I don't know why it doesn't work the way it seems to work for everyone else. But I, th I don't fundamentally care. 
because the purpose of the podcast is not to sell my books, right? It's I know it's doing the other things because people come up at events, for example, and they tell me that, oh, um, yes, I got into historical martial arts because a friend of mine forwarded one of your episodes to me and I listened to it and I thought it sounded really interesting. And obviously, people like me are welcome. I was like, that's exactly what it's all about. Oh, really? That's right? nice. So I know, I know it's doing that, and that's what I actually care about. I have other ways of selling books, you know, yeah. Facebook ads or, you know, my, my email list is what normally actually sells stuff. So like when I launch a course to my email list, that usually does okay. Um, so yeah, but the podcast doesn't, doesn't make any money that I can tell. And here's the thing. Yeah. Um, August this year was the worst month for book sales I've ever had, right? I mean, literally six years ago where I had no podcast, no email newsletters, none of that stuff. And I had half as many books. My August sales in 2016 were four times bigger than my August sales in 2022. That can't be just me. Yeah. Right. That isn't, I mean, that's, that's just, I mean, because normally like book sales are up maybe 50% over 2016. Right. So I think that was probably some larger cultural thing is like, oh my God, it's the first summer we've had without COVID. So we can all go out and do stuff and not buy books. Yeah. Right, I I think that may have had more to do with it. Um, so what does a good month and yeah? So what does a good month and a bad sorry? month look like in book sales? I, I'm kind of curious. Just some ballpark figure. Like, do you sell thousands of books, hundreds, millions? No, 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 no. Um, a in a really good month, I might sell 150 books. Okay. All right. That's a really good month. The thing is, because I published them myself, I think maybe maybe two hundred books. I don't know. I don't. I thing is, I don't pay that close attention to the data. The only reason I actually looked at the twenty sixteen versus twenty twenty two thing is because when I got my uh, publisher conversation report from Ingram Spark with my my biggest sales are always in the US. The US sales were like I was like. That can't be right. That seems to be missing a zero. <laughs> right? It was it was ridiculous. It's like no, there aren't enough figures there. There should be there should be more figures there. Um, so I went and compared it to. I, I sort of dug up the the same um, report thing from twenty sixteen. Yep. It was like, yeah, that isn't that isn't right. Um, but yeah, I guess really good month, maybe two hundred books. But because I'm I published them myself. Well, I don't publish all my books myself, but the ones that The only ones I really pay attention to are the ones I publish myself. Um, I'm not making 10% when a book sells. I'm making closer to 50. I see, so yeah. So it's, 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 like, it's like a commercially published author making... You know, actually, the way the deals are going now, it's like a commercially published author selling 10 times as many books. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but you, if I get it, Right, or if I remember it right, you started out with the classical route of going, uh, like getting some book deals, and then when you had some books yeah. out there, you had an audience, you had your mailing list, I guess. Then you started to go into the self-publishing route, right? No, not quite. No, what happened was um, the okay. My first two books were published by Freelance Academy Press. Yeah, and I signed a non-disclosure agreement about what exactly happened, but but it is public record that in, I think it was 2011, eight Freelance Academy Press, so, shit, sorry, 
freelance dudes are absolutely fine and complete. No, no, no. I got the name wrong. Beg pardon. Sugary Bookshelf was the one in 20, 2006. Freelance okay. Cabin Press didn't even exist yet. If Greg, Christian, that lot are listening to me, I apologize. I misspoke. No, it was Chivalry Bookshelf published my first two books. And in, I think it's 2011, um, eight authors published by Chivalry Bookshelf um, were involved in a class action suit against Chivalry Bookshelf for not paying royalties, basically. And um, one of the results of that suit, the rest of which I'm not at liberty to discuss yeah. because of legal what should we call it, um, was I got the rights back to those two books. And so at the same time, it was around that sort of time, um, Greg Mellet and Christian Tober were putting together Freelance Academy Press and they, uh, I, I didn't think they'd probably want those two books because they were quite old. So I thought, okay, I'll publish them myself. And I asked around, and this was before self-publishing became a really kind of mainstream thing to do. So it was, I had to like get a, a commercial account with Lightning Source rather than because Ingram Spark didn't even exist yet. Um, I, KDP weren't doing paperbacks yet either. KDP was also fairly young. I mean, yeah. Kindle came out in 2007, I think. So I published those two books. I basically paid someone to create printable files for me and I did a bit of updating work on the Source Companion to kind of, you know, because it's, it's very out of date. Um, and I published those and then there were around about the same sort of time uh, Freelance Academy Press published my Medieval Dagger book but they dragged their feet on my Medieval Longsword book right they had it on time and two years later it still hadn't come out and so I broke the contract with them because I can't afford to have like my work just sat in somebody's computer for two years yeah it's not and a healthy project not, for you yeah it's not not an option for me because you know this is this is my job yeah right and so i took it back from them and then i crowdfunded it crowdfunded publishing that myself and that went pretty well and then got that into the system and by that point i had a kind of a system for having written a book i could get it edited laid out given a cover and everything all the necessary things and then upload it to all the various platforms so they could be you know, printed and distributed and all that sort of thing. Because um, one of the things that made this actually workable is print-on-demand technology. So I don't have a stock of books in my house that I then distribute, right? When you, if you went on, you know, if you went to your local bookshop and ordered one of my books, they would put in an order. It would, the order would go to the printer with the money attached to it. Yeah. And the printer would print and ship the book and then give me some of the money, right? It's, it's completely automated. Um, and so... Um, Yeah, that, those Maybe two experiences sound uh, not exactly fun, like the joy of an author's life. Yeah, curve. yeah. Really, my experience of publishers has been it's better to do it yourself. Yeah. And you know, and that's also it. I, I control it. Like, if I want to update the covers, I could do it. I have done. If I want to make an update to the inside, like the back matter, for instance, like, you know, when I produce a new book, I should update the back matter for the other books so the new book is included in the back of the older books right that sort of thing um when i produced online courses i put a link to the my online medieval longsword course into the back of the medieval longsword book so that people who like the book and want to go for the course they can they have a discount code and they can go and find the course right yeah i have one book. of your books which, here which you, that, yeah sorry mm -hmm. because i because i'm technically the publisher i can update stuff whenever i want i don't have to run it by anybody and so i'm in control of the whole 
situation. So yeah, I have did, one did, of your books here, and I think it was one with a publisher because it's translated in German, and the cover has some guy in some not exactly uh, historical armor here, and it looks yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah 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 okay okay that's a story there oh my god right uh, the book you're talking about let me grab it um, it's Handbook Schwertkampf yeah this exactly this one right okay okay <laughs> this is the Swordsman's Companion as published in 2004. Translated into German. Yeah. Now, the thing is, Chivalry Bookshelf did a deal with Wieland Bolaget. I'm probably pronouncing that incorrectly. But um, Wieland, it is Wieland Bolaget, isn't it? That's the correct. No, Wieland Verlag. Verlaget is the Swedish thing. So, so Wieland is the publisher. And what happened was, um, Chivalry Bookshelf did a deal with Wieland that a book that Wieland had published would be sent to Chivalry Bookshelf, translated into English and published there. And my book would be sent to Feeland and published in Germany. I didn't know anything about it. <laughs> I was not informed of this. Right? One of the reasons why perhaps a lawsuit was not unreasonable. Right? And, and the results, the, the way they intended to do it was I would get royalties for the English language German book published by Chivalry. Yeah. And the German author would get royalties for my book published in German through Wieland that for reasons I cannot explain. Doesn't sound okay? fair. Okay. <laughs> no, it's, it's fucked up. So then this book came out and one of my friends, I think it was Jörg Bellinghausen, contacted me saying, Guy, congratulations on your book. Rah, rah, rah. And I, what do you mean? And I looked, I was like, fuck. Right, because they had changed stuff and like they'd, they'd missed out a photo credit and they'd missed out. You know, no one had, they'd added, a, they'd added pictures. Like, there's a really? very st on page 10 there's a very stupid picture of two uh, they look they look like they're doing some kind of reenactment stuff maybe early um, Bohurt something like that right yeah. with heater shields and, and helmets and stuff it's like that nothing to do with my book like completely unrelated they just drop that in off their own back just because they think they have I, I was I was absolutely fucking steaming, right? Yeah, Firstly, I that can imagine. published without my knowledge or consent. Secondly, that not only had they published it without my knowledge and consent, they'd gone and added shit, right? I was so angry. Anyway. So I guess this kind of your perception of, yeah, why self-publishing is the route to go because then stuff like this can't happen. <laughs> well, okay. But, okay, there's a very important right. script to this. Not that long later when um, I got my rights back from Chivalry Bookshelf, um, a chap working for Wieland contacted me to say, Guy, now that this all has happened, then um, obviously that deal with Chivalry Bookshelf is no longer in force. We're very sorry we didn't know about, you didn't know about it. We assumed that your publisher would tell you and it was all all right. Um, but it means that, of course, that now um, you are entitled to the royalties from this book um, where should we send one and a half thousand euros? <laughs> right? I was like, oh, oh. Right. I mean, so Thielen, in every aspect of this, acted in good faith. Yeah. And since then have published a couple of my books in translation. Um, they've done Medieval Longsword. They passed on Medieval Dagger. And they've had, they've had the pictures and the text for doing the Duelist Companion 
And I, I, I reshot all the pictures because the pictures we had weren't up to their specs. So I flew to Finland, organized a photo shoot and reshot all the pictures for the Duelist Companion so that the German edition would have nice new shiny pictures. Um, so, but that was I with your done. knowledge and consent. That was entirely with my enthusiastic consent and complete knowledge. And, and yeah, I mean, it was when they contacted me and said, well, look, obviously you're entitled to these royalties. I was like, okay, they made an honest mistake that was not their fault. Yeah. And they are an entirely reputable and good company that I'm very happy to do business with. <laughs> <laughs> so, but particularly, this is going out in Germany, right? So I just yeah. really want to emphasize Wieland, top chaps. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, did I get it right that your books are now printed on demand? So if I go to a bookstore and say, I want to buy this book, then it's printed on yeah. that very day or in, in the next days and sent to me. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, and the same as if you go to an online, if you go, if you go to an online bookseller of some kind. Of, yeah, but there, there's no, um, like... Uh, uh, How do you say a storage stock? Uh, no. stock. Well, yes. Okay. I think for the German ones, I think Wieland, they do short run print print runs because they are set up for printing books in runs of maybe a thousand copies or whatever, and then storing them and then sending them out. I think the Wieland ones are short, but they're the publishers. That's their business. I don't care. Hmm. That's entirely up to them. Um, my stuff, I don't have the time and setup to be packing and shipping books myself. So yeah, that's all entirely automated. I don't even see the books. I, 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 don't, even, I don't even find out that the sale has happened until um, whichever platform you buy it through, I get the reports from whichever printer printed it. And uh, you, you just upload new covers or new information on the, uh, and they are um, like directly implemented. Yeah. So, Super nice. you know, there's the interior, whether that's an ebook or print file or whatever, and then there's a cover, and you can up you, you can update either or both, and you put it into the system, and it's usually for print. It usually takes a few days because you need to check that the proof has actually worked. Particularly if you're if you're changing the interior file, you need to make sure that you haven't bollocks it up in some way, so that you know. So you need to make sure it's actually printing correctly. So I usually do a print proof of that, check that it looks fine, and then approve it. So that might take I might take up to a week. All right. Um, but with the ebooks, it's instant. So the the, the printers um, they are like all over the world, or is it shipped from um, from Great Britain? Ah, okay. This gets complicated. Right. <laughs> um, all of my books are up on Ingram Spark, which has printers all over the world. Okay. I also have my books up on KDP, which is Amazon's sort of self-publishing arm. And they also now do um, print as well. And they print locally as well. Right? They're sometimes even using, I think, the same facilities. Um, I am in the process of setting things up so that people can buy print books from me directly because I would make about 40% more per sale if people could do that. But it is not enough money for it to be worth me printing out books, packing them and shipping them myself, right? The hourly rate doesn't work out to anything worthwhile, right? And it's tedious. So that's currently, the, the issue is you have a website that is the sales platform. Let's take Amazon as a 
popular example, right? And you have the printers, let's say Ingram, okay? And they have to be, they have to be integrated in a way that allows a sale that occurs on Amazon to send the instruction to print which particular book and to send it to which particular address, plus the chunk of the money that Amazon doesn't keep, right? And then and that integration is the, is the issue, right? So now Shopify have created an integration with Lulu, which Lulu is good quality, but their print costs are astronomical. They're like three times as much as it costs to print the same book on Ingram or KDP, okay? Um, and there's also now a British company called Book Vault, which integrates with Shopify. So you can have a Shopify store, people can buy the paperback or hardback or whatever, and all that sending of instruction and stuff goes, is, is, is handled by the system, right? And the thing is, Book Vault at the moment print and print in the UK only and ship out from there. And 80% of my market is in the US. But Book Vault is, they're trying to create and they're trying to find a printer who can do the printing work for them in the US to the quality that they need at a price that will work for the Book Vault customers, like me. Um, and and they're also looking at the cheaper shipping options. So if instead of sending an individual book to an individual in America, they'll send a shipment of books once a week, which then gets split up and sent out in America. And that is much cheaper. Um, so, because, I mean, if you get it shipped from from... Britain to United States is going to cost you maybe $10, $12 in shipping. And people have been spoiled by Amazon's free shipping forever. And yeah, it's, it's, it's a problem. And of course, also, you know, I have readers in you know, Brazil and Singapore and Australia and wherever else. And so what, I'm, what we're working towards is getting a solution where perhaps BookVault can print in other places and integrate with Shopify or I might use Book Vault for UK orders and possibly Lulu for American orders, but I don't want to be paying that much money in print costs. So, yeah, it's, it's complicated. So, it, it, I mean, self-publishing is a relatively new thing in terms of this sort of automated print-on-demand stuff. Hmm. Um, but actually, it's not... I mean, people have been self-publishing for years. Like Bertrand Russell's absolutely classic... Um, Oh, philosophy of mathematics. It's, it's this gigantically important mathematical philosophy book that he wrote sometime uh, early 20th century. Cambridge University Press didn't think that it would make any money, and so he paid to have it published. Right, <laughs> and then of course it went on to become this mega classic that every university student doing maths or philosophy had to buy. And you know, uh, actually, a friend of my dad's. My dad's a veterinary surgeon. A friend of my dad's wrote a book on diseases in pigs, hmm. which became the classic work and of course he sent it round to various publishers and they all went nah nah I'm not going to touch that nah 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 so he published it himself and it became this classic and every every veterinary department in the world is teaching out of his diseases of pigs book when they're talking about pig diseases and so these same publishers contacted him a year or two later saying um, actually can we publish your book now and he told them to fuck off because <laughs> he was making so much money <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and that was like in the 60s I think alright so if, if I understood it correctly the difference is now that you can have you can start for very little money like you don't have to pay big print runs and the level of scale no that you can get is quite astonishing because you can get it basically worldwide if you want yes, to yes you, you can start for no money and you can get worldwide distribution but a sensible person pays for an editor 
And if they are not a professional graphic designer, they pay for a book cover. Yeah, mm. book covers right. are hard. Yeah, and and it's a specialist thing. And you know, I I I have a budget for you know when I produce a book, I expect to pay maybe a couple of thousand euros to get it to the level I want it to be at. Something something around there. It depends on the book and various other things, but something like that. Um, and I guess you but, expect to make this money back, right? Oh uh, yeah, and, and things I often I often run if I don't run a crowdfunding campaign in the normal sense, like on on Indiegogo, for instance. I often run effectively a, a crowdfunding campaign through my mailing list where I put up the current draft and you know, so people can buy the current draft immediately and get sent a hardback when they're ready. Yeah. Right? So they get they get the basic book, which is going to be tinkered with and improved and edited a bit, but they get the basic information um, immediately and they get a hardback when it arrives and they know that they're actually supporting the work, which is important to some people, some very kind and nice and lovely people who I completely depend on. So yes, <laughs> if you're listening, thank you very much. Um, and so that that basically, it, it usually raises enough money to pay for all of the expenses of producing the book the way I want to produce it. Um, but even if it didn't, I'm likely to get the money back because my books tend to sell. And Except not in August, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> not in August 2022. <laughs> so are the people who are um, supporting your crowdfunding campaign and you get did they get a draft, do you expect or do you hope to get some feedback back to improve the draft? Like is this part okay. of beta reading or something? Okay, feedback is a tricky thing. Yeah. You absolutely have to get qualified feedback. But firstly, most people have no clue how to give feedback to a book, right? They'll say, oh, that was really nice. I really liked it. Or, no, I didn't like it very much. And that's it. Yeah. Right? Which is completely useless. You can't act on that. Um, and also, fundamentally, the only opinions that matter are the opinions of people who actually buy the book. Right? If you find it in your friend's house and flick through it and don't like it, I don't care. Right? But if you buy it, I want to make sure that you like it. That it's like, it's exactly what you're looking for. Right? And the only way to make sure, I mean, people, people will say they're going to buy it who don't and people who don't say they're going to buy it do and there's no way to know who's going to buy it unless you actually sell it to them yeah right and so what i've been doing with these pre-sales is um it creates a a list if you like of people who are sufficiently interested that they are definitely going to buy the book so much so that they actually already have bought the book right so now i know that their opinion matters right and yeah. then i have in the either in the draft itself and or in an email or whatever that goes out, I have a link to a Google form where there is a list of questions that I want them to answer and a space for them to put, if they would like to be credited in the acknowledgements, they need to write whatever they want to be credited as in that space, right? So then I have a file. So when I'm doing the acknowledgements, when the book's about to be published, I just copy and paste those things in and you know, so the people who want to be acknowledged can be. And if a 100 people buy the book in advance maybe 20 will fill out the form yeah and of those maybe 12 will put a name in that field so right. i was on the side of not filling out the form once i bought the the teaching uh, what's it called again the full title which one the the one about uh, how to teach european martial arts oh the course no the the, the book like uh, what's it called what i was... haven't written a book about how to teach historical martial arts yet i'm in the process of doing so but i haven't written it I've got a course on how to teach. I mean, the theory and practice of a sort oh, of martial arts. Oh, yeah. you were one of my beta readers for theory and practice, were you? 
Uh, yeah, Singer supported the crowdfunding campaign and I would have had the opportunity to give feedback, but I never got around it. <laughs> and then at some point, People just the email came to, yeah, it's uh, finished. Thank you for your feedback. Like, uh, <laughs> Right, there you go. Because, <laughs> um, yeah, I, and I always put a date on it because I need it by a certain time because the book needs to get out into the world. Because um, what, what that does is with that list of questions, it makes it easy for them to give actually useful feedback. So... I ask questions like, what was your favorite bit? What was your least favorite bit? Is there anything you think I should cut out? Is there anything you think I should add? Um, any other comments? Would you, rec or one of the first ones is, would you recommend this to your friends? Yeah. Right? Um, and then the bits about acknowledgements and put your name in and that sort of stuff. So that gives them the, like a structure, which are, and they're just simply answering the questions it's much easier for them to do that than it is for them to actually give a useful critical feedback just with a blank email. Yeah. Um, and that's where the, the stuff about, you know, I need to expand my tournament section and make it a bit less cynical <laughs> came from. <laughs> um, and you do this for every book or is it just some of the books and some um, others? Yeah, most books, I think for the last six years or so. Um, I, I, I think I did it for the first time for... Well, it might have been theory of practice, actually. I yeah. honestly I don't remember. About how many books are we actually talking? How many books did you write? Um, hang on. Uh, like actually published books. Eight, nine, ten, I think we're at 12 at the moment. But it's, it's, oh no, I missed out two. So 14. 14. And how many <laughs> years? Um, my first one came out in 2004. And it took me four years to write. The second one came out in 2006. It took me two years to write. Then I had kids in 2007 and 2008. So my next book came out in 2010. <laughs> and that was Medieval Dagger. And then there's... Um, like, like one thing I did, for example, for Theory and Practice and for my From Medieval Manuscript to Modern Practice books, both of those um, I wrote sort of discrete chunks. Like, for example, for Theory and Practice, I wrote... Um, the Seven Principles of Mastery, Choosing a Sword, Ethics, Breathing, um, a few other bits and pieces, which were published as separate standalone short books. Like um, Preparing for Free Play, for instance, is uh, like 10,000 words on skill development. Um, and those were published as shorts to get, firstly, to get some money in, because it helps to feed the children, um, but also because it gets readers interested in giving me feedback so I can improve it for when it goes into the book that is is so the book theory and practice about half of it has been previously published as these seven discrete um separate books um with from many of manuscript to modern practice it is fundamentally it is the sections of fury's longsword material out of armor on foot so sword in one hand sword in two hands dogger largo sword in two hands dogger strato oh and there's a section of um guards and blows i separated that out so like mechanics Sword in one hand, sword in two hands, Zogolaro, sword in two hands, Zogostrato. So Mechanics, Largo, and Sword in One Hand were published as standalone ebooks. And then I added the Strato stuff and a bunch of other stuff and I published it together as a whole book. I find it it helps to break stuff down into chunks. And if a book's going to take several years, it's actually really quite difficult because When when you publish a book and people go, oh, I do like your new book, guys, it's very nice, right? But it's it's 
difficult to keep going in isolation, but by publishing chunks of it, if they work as a standalone chunk, publish it as a separate thing and get feedback from that, it kind of just helps keep the process moving along yeah. until, until it looks ready. I don't do that with every book, but with some it seems seems to work. And um, are you publishing every book as um, a hardcover or paperback and ebook, or either or both? Generally, ebook, paperback, hardback. Um, my workbooks are available as ebooks and as um, paperbacks. I, I think I probably ought to do a hardback version because it's easier to write on if it's a hardback book. Um, but so that's my my rapier workbook series, um, which is, again, I produced it in four separate volumes and then I produced the combined <laughs> volume. Um, it's just easier that way. I've also got the first volume of my Armazari workbook series. That's out. Um, and they're, they're both just paperbacks and eBooks. And there are, um, and the eBooks and the, like the, the real books, um, are they, uh, are the, the same amounts sold or is one superior to the other? Generally speaking, I make the most money by mile out of the paperbacks, hmm. right? Hardbacks do sell, but not very much. And I sell most of those to the early adopters who, who you know, buy the book before it comes out. Mm -hmm. um, and ebooks, I sell some. I don't even really track them because I, I don't really think of the ebooks as a proper product because I, I, I'm of the generation that predates ebooks by quite some time. And I've, I've never been able to actually really read on an e-reader. Um, it's just, just doesn't work to hold my attention. Um, so to me, paper is the thing. Um, but if you look at it from a sort of business perspective, if you have a, if you have three products of three different prices, people will usually pick the middle one. Hmm. Um, and it just happens like, like actually a while ago in January this year, I think I ran a series of Facebook ads to, I put the Medieval Longsword ebook up on my um, online course platform thing as a because it has all these various things that you can do and free stuff you can add in and what. Um, and I ran Facebook ads to that and it did okay. You know, quite a few people bought it. But the most common question I got was, "Is a paperback version available?" <laughs> <laughs> to which I would happily reply, "Why, yes, it is." <laughs> Right, go to wherever and, and, and buy. And yeah, I that was actually, I think I sold more copies of Medieval Longsword in paperback that month than any other month ever, hmm. right? Just because the Facebook ads seem to work. I need to run some more Facebook ads, obviously, because <laughs> because if my August sales are anything to go by, I actually need to, to do some work to get people to actually go buy my stuff. I find it a bit curious uh, that you don't consider the theory and practice of historical martial arts to be a book about teaching. Uh, oh, it has it has a section of teaching in it. Yeah, but it's but it's not just about teaching. It's it's got a big about a third of the book is how to do the research. That's not teaching. That's research. But I think it's something right. that uh, instructors should know. It's not. Oh, oh, that's yeah. a whole other, that's a whole other question. Okay, teaching is its own separate skill, right? Uh, so that's the differentiation. Because I yeah. looked at it as a as a, a book that instructors could and should probably read, because there's a lot of stuff in them in it for them. So I kind of put it oh, in the teaching I, corner. Right. I mean, I'm, and I'm very glad that you think that because that's pretty much what I intended. Um, yeah. But teaching, like people can do research and not be able to teach, 
and people can teach and not be able to do research. They're two That's fundamentally true, yeah. different skills. Hmm. And so the research section is there for people who want to do research. And hopefully that includes quite a lot of teachers. Um, but it also has, also, as you know, it has sections on you know, mechanics and skill development and breathing and yeah. um, you know, various other things. So, and it does have a section on how to teach a class, how to teach an individual lesson. And so basically my course that's coming out this month, How to Teach, is those two little chapters from Theory and Practice expanded out into basically an entire book length worth of material unto, unto itself because teaching is its own separate thing. And will you write a book about teaching specifically as well or is it just a course, like just in the... Um, at the moment, it's just a course. I set out to write a book and it wasn't coming and it wasn't coming and it wasn't coming and it didn't work and I couldn't get it to work and it just didn't bloody work. And then I thought, well, why don't I make it a course? And then it just wrote itself. So I was like, okay. So in my head, apparently, they're two different things. And actually, given that this course is mostly audio, of course, I wrote everything out first and then I read it carefully into the microphone and then carefully edited it and all that in that in the studio as I was mentioning earlier. So it's, it is, um, you know, it is a book worth of material for sure. Yeah. But because it's, because I'm trying to communicate a skill, um, it has exercises and things in it. Like, you know, you're supposed to download class plans and fill them out in a certain way. And you're supposed to, um, like plan out a whole beginner's course and right. Get an idea of your class plans, but having run the first class with your after action review section, you then use that to modify your plan for the next class. And one of the exercises is like to see how your original beginner's course plan changed as it met the beginners. Yeah. Right? Well, so I guess that. if you wrote it out beforehand, you could call it as an audiobook. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, but, you know, the thing is, my audiobooks don't sell at all. I've produced two and nobody buys them. Right? I don't know why. Okay. But I mean, I paid, I paid a professional actor to narrate the theory and practice book, Kelly Costigan. And I have yet to sell enough lessons. Two years later, I have not yet sold enough copies of the audio book of theory and practice to get the money back that I paid the narrator. Right. Okay. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's a shame. Yeah. Well, You see, I think it will come. I think we are, people are getting more and more used to consuming audio about various different things. And they just don't know to go and look for an audiobook about historical martial arts, right? And so I think, I think we will, I think eventually it will take off. Like, like my George Silver audiobook. It sold not brilliantly, but okay in the crowdfunding campaign. And I've got the original pronunciation version. Uh, with Ben Crystal, who is a world-class Shakespearean actor doing original pronunciation, sort of 16th century London accent, reading George Silver's book. It's absolutely brilliant. Um, and Jonathan Hartman, who is a modern Shakespearean actor, doing the kind of modern pronunciation of, the, of, the, of, George, Silver, of George Silver's Paradox of Defense. It, it raised just enough money during the crowdfunding campaign to pay for the narrators. Yeah hasn't made me any money since. <laughs> right. So my months and months of work went into that and not, <laughs> I've not been paid for. But, you know, I don't care. It was, it was a good idea and it, I'm not sorry I did it. Um, the thing is, if I produce this how to teach thing as an audio book, it will make no money. Yeah. Right. And I need people, I mean, honestly, it'll make no money because no one will buy it. And if no one buys it, no one will hear it. And if no one hears it, 
the standard of teaching in the historical martial arts worldwide is not going to go up, or at least not. It, the reason I produce this is because it's really obvious to me that an awful lot of people are teaching historical martial arts because they're the person who happens to know the most in that particular room, and they don't necessarily particularly want to be teaching, or if they do want to be teaching, they don't particularly know how to do it, so they're just doing their best, and it would make their lives an awful lot easier if they had a clear you know, sort of a clear sort of process for actually acquiring the skill of teaching. So if I yeah, I think course, you're absolutely right on that. Also, uh, I mean, you can find information out there, but it's bits and pieces here and there, but you have to put it together yourself. And if you have just one place where all the bits and pieces are already prearranged so that it fits for historical European martial arts, it should exactly. make life easier. Exactly, exactly. And then eventually, when hopefully the course has made plenty of money and I can, you know, feed my children and keep flying airplanes and whatnot, um, then I might produce a book to kind of go with it. Like my um, Windsor Method, The Principles of Solo Training, that book grew out of my solo training course. Uh, sorry, which one, which book did you say? The Windsor Method, The Principles yeah. of Solo Practice, uh, Solo Training. <clears throat> Basically, how do you train yourself to be good at the things you want to be good at? Yeah. And um, uh, so it was after the course was running for a while? Yeah, yeah. I produced the course in 2019. Yeah. And then COVID hit in 2020. And so... <laughs> More I relevant than ever. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And you no, know, if you're stuck at home and you can't get to your sword club, you're going to go mad if you're a sword person. And so I thought this might help. And so I, I made it widely available by dropping the price by 95%. <laughs> so pretty much anybody could get it. Yeah. And if they, couldn't, if they couldn't afford the $20 I was asking for it, then they could email me and I'd let them in for free because, you know, people are... It was a shitty situation and it was something that might help. And it did help some people. I know people told me. Did people take you up on offer? Like, did someone yeah, know you? Over yeah, over a thousand people. Really? Okay. Yeah. Um, and a bunch of people contacted me to say, um, you know, because I was offering it also for free, um, could they send me $100 or whatever to cover five free places? Oh, really? Oh, super nice. That's great. Yeah. That was super nice. And some blessed people actually just paid full price for the course as well, <laughs> which was even, even better. Because, <laughs> um, yeah, of course, of course, all my, all my seminars teaching income disappeared in 2020 right yeah. um, yep. and it's a major part of my sort of my business ecosystem is actually showing up and teaching in person actually it's my favorite thing to do and i would do it for free if you know i could afford not to charge for it but it's yeah, none of that was happening in 2020 so um yeah so the, the course was already there and people were engaging with it and you know contacting me about it and you know and so i produced the book in i think last year 2021 um, because like it's helpful like basically an online course is usually a bunch of videos or audio or whatever else and you kind of go through it perhaps in whatever order you want and it's it's difficult to get a clear picture of the overall kind of intellectual structure of it right books are really good for that right they're they're linear and compact and yeah. they're, they're, they're good for sort of um, taking this pattern out of your head and laying it down so that people can see it yeah um, yeah, so I produced the book, and it's funny. The course did really well, um, and the book has hardly sold a single copy. <laughs> There's no way to know. There is absolutely no way to know. Like nearly ten years after it was first published, many of the longsword had its best month ever, and in this year of publication, Wizard Method Principles of Solo Training did 
almost no business. I mean, it, uh, it paid for itself. It paid for the you know, layout and cover design and whatnot. And you know, it, um, it, that's a pretty surprising. I would have really thought you had that process figured out because you're yeah. at it for so long and you have so, so, so much experience. Right, but then you see, I don't write to market. I don't figure out what's going to sell and then write that. I figure out what I want to write next and write that. And yeah, like, okay. like you know, my my Vadi translation. Um, the art and uh, sorry the the art of sword fighting in earnest right which is just translation and commentary and introduction all that sort of stuff it's made no money because because why would it how many people actually want to read Vadi right lots of people want to swing swords around in a Vadi like way but they don't want to read the book right so it but I didn't write it because I expected it to make money I wrote it because I wanted to understand Vadi Right, so it did what it was supposed to do, and yeah, it paid for its expenses, and it was part of my PhD and stuff. So it had all sorts of other knock-on benefits, but yeah, the books that actually consistently actually make money are invariably books that make it easy for you to swing swords around. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we kind of started out with the podcast, and now we have gone down this rabbit hole into the. And yeah, the, the guy verse, like a bit yeah, of a metaverse. Yeah, yeah just with right, a lot you, of you stuff, really. Yeah. You ask the questions, I, I'll answer them. Um, yeah, I'm perfectly happy to hear. It's just like, um, it's impressive how much stuff you did over the years. And I mean, there are many points that we didn't even cover, like the card games and the involvement. Oh, God, is, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, uh, that, maybe funny. let's look in the future. You already mentioned that you're working on the, the course about teaching. Uh, yeah. S something else coming up um okay the how to teach course is the sort of the first phase of it is done like it's ready to go out to the first cohort of students who will then tell me they need to have a section on this or tell me that they didn't understand the section on that and that will give me some you know so these these things they they tend to improve over time but it's fundamentally done um the things coming after that I have a couple in my head, um, but they're both in a very delicate stage where if I let them come out of my mouth, they're probably going to break. Mm -hmm. this, is, this, is, this, is not, this is not me being cagey. This is, it's, it's, and it's not a sort of privacy thing or whatever. It's just um, when an idea begins, if it, it, it needs to kind of crystallize and become clear and robust before it's ready to be looked at outside the head. So... I don't. I don't. I don't have a project that's coming next down the pipe that is that is sufficiently developed in the idea stage that I can say, ah, yes, it's a book about this, or ah, yes, it's a course about that. It, that hasn't happened yet. Um, but yes, there'll, there'll be stuff coming, of course, because uh, you know historical martial arts is huge. And I mean, one thing I'd like to do this. This. This is an idea. I, Jessica Finney was supposed to come over to the UK in June and for various reasons that didn't happen. But I, I'm planning on doing at some point, if I can hold Jessica's feet to the fire weekend, or I mean maybe just to fly over to Kansas and go see her and we'll do it there. Um, Fiore's wrestling stuff. I'm not a good enough wrestler to really teach that to wrestlers. We're talking a course here, right? Yeah, this would be this would probably be a video course thing. That would mm -hmm. be very cool. Yeah. to get Jessica and I because I know the Fury stuff inside out and backwards and Jessica knows the wrestling stuff inside out and backwards and together we can get a solid this is how this is how these techniques work that's the easy bit then this is how we train to make these techniques work and then this is how these techniques are applied in other situations that sort of thing that I would like to do with Jessica um, 
I don't know. I'm also working pretty hard on my private pilot's license, which is taking up quite a lot of my thinking space. <laughs> guy in the sky. <laughs> yeah, guy in the sky. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, so, Guy, there's one question that you keep asking your guests, and I'd like to hear um, your take on it. Uh, I'm not going to phrase it like you did. Can you ask yourself your final question on the podcast? <laughs> oh, okay. Um, I think the question you mean is, uh, what is the best idea you haven't acted on? Exactly. Beautifully worded. Okay. I have two. I've had one billion dollar idea in my life. And I actually discussed it in my episode with Joe York. Um, and it is the fundamental problem of collaboration in any kind of artistic project is splitting up the money, right? It's really hard. Okay. Because copyright persists for 75 years after your death or whatever. And if this thing, let's say, let's say the three of us wrote a book together and it gets published, then the publisher, which might be me, might be one of you, whatever, or somebody else, has to split up the money and give it to us and give it to our heirs for 70 odd years after we die, assuming that the book continues to sell. Right. And also, wouldn't it be nice if, let's say you, you're writing a book and um, you want professional help with it, editing or whatever, wouldn't it be nice if you could say, give the editor their fee or a slightly reduced fee and a percentage of the proceeds, assuming the book makes money? I mean, think, the person who edited the first Harry Potter book made probably a couple of thousand quid for their editing work, and that's it. Yeah. Right? How frustrating is that? If they've been given maybe 1% of the proceeds, they could retire, right? That's true, yeah. Retire to a pretty fancy big house too. So anyway, so what I would like, well, this idea that I haven't acted on because it is basically, it would require finding the right people because it's absolutely not something you can build by yourself, is to build a service where creators can register a project with the service register who owns what percentages of the project and then all the money generated by the project goes through the service and is then distributed according to the percentages that the creators have agreed on that's a pretty good pitch because then also as an editor for example you can take some risks like if you really like something and yeah. it sounds very promising you can say you know what i'm doing a reduced rate i believe in this project Ex and then you exactly. give it the, the, the extra effort right right and of course so this service would be funneling huge amounts of money if it does well. And of course, it would be taking a its own percentage of that, maybe 2% or whatever, right? And providing the service so that more creative collaboration can happen. Yeah, and then self-publishing so, is on the rise. There is a growing yeah. need to get in right. touch with so, editors and so on. Yeah, so it, it's a fundamental good because it allows people to work together who otherwise maybe couldn't. And it's a fundamentally good business idea because it means basically getting control of a gigantic cash flow. Yeah, I like it. Right. It's really? a good idea. Good but, idea. But it's, yeah, I like it. It's probably the only billion dollar idea I've ever yeah. <laughs> um, And the other one, I think it was um, Mila Andreevska who asked me this when I interviewed her for my show. And it was the, what would you do if you had like millions of euros to spend improving a sort of martial arts worldwide? And it was also the best idea I haven't acted on, which is a social media platform that you pay for, which will eliminate 99% of the shit, <laughs> right? Because there would be no need for algorithms or any of that sort of stuff. And there'll be no advertising. It's all paid for. But it's, it's a non-profit, paid-for service, 
so that sword people can interact with each other in a safe and and useful online space, right? Now, I have a Discord server that, that my online students use, and that is something a bit like that. But what I have in mind is much bigger. And like at the moment, most historical martial arts events, um, they just have a Facebook page. That is a shitty, awful situation because Facebook can pull that page at any time. They just can change their terms of service and all yep. that stuff just disappears, right? And for various sensible reasons, quite a lot of the people who um, are on my mailing list, for instance, will not go to a Facebook link. They will not, they will not go to an event that they can only find on Facebook because they will not go on to, they will not create a Facebook account to get into the website so that they can actually see this event. And on the other hand, about 90% of the HEMA crowd is probably only still on Facebook because of the HEMA stuff. Exactly, exactly. They've all shifted to Instagram and other places, right? So a historical martial arts specific, paid for, but non-profit <coughs> social media thing so that, you know, you can have mentoring programs, you can run events, you can do all the social media stuff that you normally do. You can post pictures of your cat if you want. Um, but that's also where you'll find, like on my Discord at the moment, you might find, I don't know, Michael Chidester and Cornelius... Um, Ah, God, blanking on his surname. Dothard? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly him. Discussing some incredibly abstruse aspect of you know, medieval manuscripts, right? And that no one is ever going to see that except the people who happen to be on my Discord who happen to be on that section of it at that time or happen to scroll back through it and find it, right? Because it's not really searchable and it's not really... It's fine. It, it gets people talking to each other and that's a good thing. But it's not, it doesn't have the kind of the, the benefits that you get with a forum or a... It's well, not an yeah, archive. You, you right, can't find exactly. the old stuff. It's, exactly. They talk about it exactly. and it's gone. Yeah. So it will take a lot of money to set it up to build it properly. But it should be, because of course you need apps and, you know, like iOS app and various other apps and blah, blah, blah. You know, it has to work on people's phones. It has to work the way people currently use social media now. Um, but it... It would have it would eliminate all of the nastiness that you get with kind of classic social media. So that's that's what I would, that's another idea I have not acted on because I'm totally unqualified to act on it. <laughs> Interesting. I am running an HEMA event calendar for Germany, Austria, and Switzerland for that okay. reason, so that people can get away from Facebook and the non-Facebook crowd because they're that the younger HEMA is are not on Facebook because why would they join? Maybe Instagram or TikTok or whatever. So yeah. uh, they were excluded from uh, event. Right. Not participation, there's usually some, L, some other way to get there, but they didn't know about it. Like, how could you figure it out if you were not on Facebook? Yeah, you find sure. it on. Yeah, sorry, make sure you send me a link to put in the show notes. Yeah, it's yes. uh, easy. It's hema.events. Yeah, I wanted wow. to say that. That is easy. Yeah. It's hema.events. Yeah. Super straightforward. <laughs> that, that is a really good URL. I was surprised <laughs> that it was still free. Yeah. <laughs> that is a really. Obviously, of course, if you claim the URL that's that general, You have to expand it to include the American events and the Australian events and the Singaporean events and the Indonesian events. And Well, it's not, uh, the, the site is not uh, even a year old yet. And I could uh, imagine expanding to other countries, but you have to get it working in, in one place. Yeah, because yeah, sure. if there's just one event in Poland and one in France, it doesn't work. But if really yeah. someone says, please do it for my country, we will support it and we actually will go and use it, maybe. 
that's a positive that's idea. That's a brilliant idea. So that's a really good idea that you have acted on. Yeah. Excellent. Well done. Brilliant. All right. Well, it's been great talking to you guys. Um, thank you too. Run massively over time. Yes, thank you very fine. much for your time. Yeah. That's um, probably, no, that's not probably. That is the longest Schwertgeflüster episode we have done so far. <laughs> and it's probably going to be the longest um, Sword Guy episode too. So, brilliant. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Alexander and Michael. You can find the episode show notes at swordschool.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find transcriptions, photos, videos, and links for this episode. I should also mention that as we talk a lot about podcasting and podcast editing, somebody sent me a question about how to edit podcast audio, and I ended up shooting a 20-minute video on exactly what I do to bring the raw recordings up to a transmissible standard. I am not an audio engineer, but you may find that video interesting if you have an interest in how podcast audio engineering can be done by people who are not audio engineers and can just be taught to push buttons like a moderately well-trained monkey. I will put a link to that video in the show notes. While you are there, of course, you should sign up for my mailing list and I will send you a free copy of my Sword Persons Care Package. This includes four ebooks and access to several of my online courses. Join us next week when I'll be talking to Lee Shockey, who works in the aerospace industry as well as being a historical martial arts person who has, amongst other things, helped to organize the fantastic Sword Squatch event in Seattle and has helped to run the Lonin Historical Martial Arts Club also in Seattle. Although we do spend, I should say, quite a lot of time talking about rockets because, as everyone knows, rockets are extremely cool. You definitely don't want to miss it. So subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcast from. And while you're there, please do rate the show. And if you have an extra minute, leave a review. It really does help. And as always, tell your friends, tell your friends, tell your friends about the show because everyone should be listening to The Sword Guy. At least... All sword people should be listening to the sword guy. Honest. You know you want to. Go on, tell your friends. Thanks for listening. I will see you next week.